0: welcome to the australian chiropractors association podcast the aca is the peak body representing chiropractors in australia hosted by aca president dr anthony Coxon, these podcasts explore the science art philosophy and politics of chiropractic as well as reviewing the latest research and discussing how chiropractors can strive for excellence in practice Welcome to the Australian Chiropractors Association podcast. I'm your podcast host, Anthony Coxon. In the next few weeks, the ACA will be sending information to members about the upcoming board elections. This is obviously a very important democratic process, so we thought it would be good to put together a podcast so members can understand what's involved, and importantly, what the responsibilities of a director entail. This is obviously critical for anyone considering nominating for a director position, but I think it's something uh, that all members should understand. To help me make the complex simple, I'm joined today by ACA board-appointed director Martin Baird. Now, Martin is our governance and finance expert on the board, and his sage advice has been invaluable to the ACA and former CAA over the last seven years. If you've been fortunate enough to hear Martin talk at an AGM, you'll recognise that not only does he know his stuff, but he's very willing to uh, share his informa- uh, this information in a generous way to enlighten others. Now, a bit of background on Mark on Martin. Uh, he's uh, a corporate governance and finance professional. He's been a practicing company secretary uh, with Aftercare, Northern Metropolitan Cemeteries Land Manager, and formerly St George Community Housing. He's appointed as a non-executive director, of course, for the ACA, but also for the Australian College of Mental Health Ner- Nurses and formerly World Skills and Bridge Housing. He chairs audit and risk committees, and he was a member of the Finance and Audit Committee of Trainworks. His professional qualifications include a Bachelor of Business at the uh, UTS. He's a certified practicing accountant, a graduate of the Australasian Institute for Company Directors, and he's a Chartered Secretary. Uh, Martin, welcome to the ACA podcast. Thank you. So let's start with the basics. Uh, the ACA is um, a professional association and a company limited by guarantee. What does that mean?
1: Well, thank you, Anthony. It's a, it's a common misconception when you think about the word company and association in the same sentence. Com- ACA is, as you say, a company limited by guarantee. That means that it's formed under corporation's law and is regulated by the Australian Securities and Investments Commission, ASIC. That's in contrast to an association which is regulated by state law. Key differences between a company limited by guarantee and every other company are that a company such as BHP or Telstra has shareholders, this company has members. And the other key difference is at the end of this company's life, the assets can't be distributed back to the members. They have to go to another entity with similar similar aims. So what then are the legal
0: responsibilities of a director? And uh, is this any different from the ACA to other Australian companies?
1: I think the short answer is no. It's no no different to other companies, um, such as Telstra, BHP, Or any local company that you may be familiar with. Um, The main, sometimes those other companies have additional requirements because they're listed on the stock exchange. But really, the key interests, the key responsibilities of a director for ACA are to firstly act in the interests of the company. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. Um, Second, to behave, to declare and to manage conflicts of interest don't use your position as a director um, to for your own benefit and thirdly I always say behave presuming you come from an ethical family as though you could tell your mum everything you're doing and I think it's a pretty basic rule but if you think about it it makes sense um, so there are a number of obvious um, many more complexities to that and there are liabilities around being a director. Don't misunderstand that directors can have personal liability for the things that they do. We have protections against that, particularly in the form of insurance but, and risk management plans and things like that, but um, it is a serious decision to decide to become a director. It's a decision we encourage, but you should take full note of the risks and the liabilities that attach.
0: So in your experience, both on the ACA board and on many other boards, what are some of the common pitfalls that new directors uh, coming into the board might run into?
1: I think the the most common one um, is that directors, even sometimes when they've been on the board for a long time, um, forget that their main responsibility is to act in the interests of the company, not any subgroup. So, you need to take into account the overall interests of the company, where it's going strategically, what its operations are, and when you make a decision, say to yourself in a reasonable way, does this make sense for this company? Um, sometimes, and the, the board will have heard me say this, um, that may conflict with the interests of the profession, which might sound strange because the company's there to represent the profession, but there would be occasions when um, some parts of the profession and the actions of those parts may not be in line with the interests of the company as a whole. Mm. Second, um, I think um, the next thing that a new director would need to understand is the company's strategy and strategic direction and contribute to it, and question it if you don't agree. Because there's an assumption sometimes that the strategy doesn't necessarily change because we have new directors, and it's not a valid assumption. Mm. We should always understand where we're heading. Strategic plan, as it's called, focuses on three to five years, sometimes more, and decisions are made against that strategic plan. So it's important that you understand the strategy of the company, It's important that you understand the difference between that strategic thinking that I was just talking about and operations and compliance. So you have responsibilities to make sure that the company complies with legislation. You have responsibilities to make sure the operations are run in a reasonable and an efficient manner. And so getting that balance right is not easy. It's not easy for a director and it's often not easy for a board. But the generally accepted wisdom is that more time is spent on strategy than on compliance and operations. I think McKinsey did a report that talked about 70-30. Very often you see uh, not-for-profits um, who don't meet very often think that it's just a case of coming together every three or four months and saying, things are okay, thank you very much, see you next time. And that's that comment, things are okay, is about the the review of operations and the compliance piece. It's not about where are we going to go and how are we going to make this company succeed. And then lastly, I think a new director, particularly if you haven't been on a board before, needs to understand what is known as the collegiate and confidential process of of a board. How does a board actually work? How does it make decisions? So you've got a group of quite disparate people. Very often you only come together Uh, for this sort of purpose. You may not know each other socially or in any other way. And so you need to be able to have robust, frank discussions in a way that um, you end up in a collegiate decision. You don't always agree and you don't expect it to agree. And sometimes you even say, um, I don't agree and I want that recorded in the minutes. But generally, being on a board is supposed to be a good experience. It's supposed to be something you enjoy doing most of the time, and um, you need this, the the confidence of confidentiality. So I think that's that's a learning piece for all new directors, and quite often a learning piece for directors that may have been there for some time.
0: And two comments I'll make uh, relate to that. Firstly, the, the on the strategy, the obviously the ACA have a a five year strategic plan from two 2000- thousand. Um, an 18 through to, to, to 2023 but this this is something that's reviewed every year so new uh, directors if there are new directors coming onto the board that will they'll have an opportunity to um, to be a part of that review again at post uh, elections and I think also just as a general commentary in terms of the collegiate nature of the board I think we certainly have uh, uh, I would say Martin a uh, fairly robust conversations from time to time yes. uh, but do. we that's good Yes. We encourage
1: open and robust conversations.
0: Absolutely. and uh, But at the end of the day, we, we still all, all leave uh, good friends and I think it's a bit harder with COVID and not being able to um, uh, connect and uh, with people after the, the board meetings. But I, but I think we sort of certainly have respect for each other and I, and I think we're, we operate well as a board in, in that regard.
1: And, um, and that's what I meant by actually enjoying your time as a director because you're together with people quite a lot yes. over a period of years and they actually do develop into good friends on lots of occasions that doesn't mean to say you all agree with each other at all and very often you won't yes like some of your better friends can be those you don't agree with yes. that's not really the point <laughs>
0: that's what democracy is all about uh, i guess
1: I our politicians in Canberra would think the
0: same. (laughs) Now, under the ACA constitution, the board is made up of a minimum of four and a maximum of nine directors. Six of these directors uh, are to be chiropractors um, uh, nominated by the membership and three board appointed directors. You're obviously one of those. Um, Now, you've been on the board for for seven years. Um, Can you tell me briefly about the new board-appointed directors and why they were appointed and what value they offer to the ACA?
1: Well, we're going to talk um, a little later about the value of what's known as a skills-based board or an experience-based board. But after the last election, the board was concerned that we may have lost some of the key elements of a well-functioning board, particularly in regard to diversity um, and diversity is not just gender diversity, as often people think. It's also geographic diversity and, in my, in my view, very particularly important for age diversity. Um, says he with 28-year-old daughters, they think differently. Yes. And it's very useful if you have an association or a company such as ACA where a lot of the members are young, younger that we have people that think like that on the board. And so... We looked at the outcome of the last election and said, why don't we use the power of the constitution to appoint two people to deal with some of that diversity question and also to deal with skills. One of the processes the board goes through is an assessment of the skills on the board and a gap analysis of the skills we think we might need to get the the strategy um, implemented. So firstly, uh, we appointed Julia, Um, and Julia really ticked a number of those diversity boxes. She was um, female and is now the only, or was then the only female on the board until we got Nikki, Um, and she's also from Queensland, and she's young. So we sort of got almost a three-for-one diversity increase by by having Julia. And I must say, as an aside, um, I have absolutely valued her input. Uh, Not that I don't value the input of all of them, but she she pipes up sometimes and says things, and I think to myself, that's right. That's a different way of looking at it.
0: Yes, indeed. Um,
1: We also have a desire as a board to have a broad range of experience that we think we will need to implement the strategy and to run the operations day to day. And so we were incredibly lucky um, to get Nicole Nicole has extremely strong government, media and public relations background. And when you think about um, the ACA, we need somebody to be incredibly well-informed to help us respond to the many issues that come up um, from government's perspective, and the media. and the, the classic example for me is, is in response to Safer Care Victoria. Um, having her input into that response was was crucial to the success of it that I think we had yeah. um, in responding to that question.
0: All right, moving on to audit and risk. You're the chair of that committee. Tell us about what um, the audit and risk committee does and how we monitor and mitigate for
1: risk. Well, I guess I can say it sounds pretty boring. I mean, who wants to spend time talking about audit and risk? <laughs> but, the, but the reality is almost every company Um, has an Audit and Risk Committee. And if I can divert slightly, the function of board committees is to enable uh, a subgroup of the board um, more time and more expertise to focus on particular aspects of a company's business. That doesn't absolve the board as a whole from responsibility for any of the processes of audit or risk or liability that I talked about before. But it does say to the board, well, here's a group of people who have had time to look at this perhaps in a little more detail. So we look at, obviously, the finances of the company and the audit process. We engage with the annual statutory audit and the auditor. We make recommendations to the board about the auditor and and respond to any critiques that they may have. But just as importantly, and probably growing in importance among not-for-profit companies is an increasing focus on the management of risk. You can't manage risk and get rid of it. What you can do is identify that risk exists and work out what to do about it and work out whether those things have been successful. So we set up, we have an audit and risk committee that operates under a charter and we established a risk framework under the international standard ISO 31000 that sets out a good, recognised, internationally acknowledged way to go through that process. And so the board and management, I go through a process of firstly identifying things that they think are, are at risk in terms of the company delivering its services. As I say, you can't get rid of risk. In fact, some risk is actually good risk as long as you acknowledge that. So once we've got the list of things we think Risks, we then go through a process of assessing how likely it is that risk is going to be, and if it happens, what's the consequence to the company? Um, And then after you've you've come up with what's called a risk rating, you then agree what's known as mitigation actions. What can we actually do about that risk? Um, And as I say, you can't do everything about all risk, but if there are some things you can make a difference to um, in terms of your operations or the strategic plan by understanding that risk and doing something about it, it's a good thing to do. So the Ordinary Risk Committee takes a deeper look at that, but doesn't absolve the board as a whole from their responsibility for risk management for the company.
0: And we put that together in the version of like a, a heat map. Uh, so obviously the, the, the higher the risk in terms of more likely and especially the the greater the co- consequence pushes it into the, to the red zone. But that heat map and uh, those uh, lists of risks are something that are, is continually on the agenda for each of the board meetings for us to, to review, which is which is obviously important. It should
1: important. be on the, it is on the agenda for every board meeting. Um, and at least once a year, if not more often, it, it's incumbent on the board as a whole to understand that full list. That full list is known as the Enterprise Risk Register and take time and sensibly discuss each risk and agree whether the ratings that we've assessed are right or not and agree whether the mitigation actions are valid or not or even reasonable.
0: So I want to move on to uh, the CEO role now. How does the board work in with the CEO CEO, and what's their role versus the role of the board?
1: I think when you think about a company, you've really got three key groups uh, linked together by the constitution as much as anything. So you've the members that we talked about before and you have the board. The members elect the board to run the company. Pretty much that's how it goes. That's what corporations law says. Corporations law also says that in most cases, the board can delegate the day-to-day operations and management of the company to a CEO or some equivalent type person. So the CEO is responsible for the day-to-day management and operation of the company. They're also responsible for helping develop the ongoing strategy, and they're also responsible for um, the the primary interface with, in our case, members or shareholders. Um, And they act under the um, instruction of the board. They act to implement board decisions, and they act to develop and implement um, board-approved strategy. Um, The question also arises... What about the links between uh, a board and the staff? It's true that there are some executive staff have very particular one-on-one relationships with some board members. And the obvious example is Kim Hall, as a CFO, has a very particular and direct relationship with me as chair of the audit committee. We plan the meetings. She prepares a lot of the papers for that. um, And we discuss financial issues, out of time. But in most cases, uh, the communication has to at least include the CEO one way or another, Um, either directly through the CEO or sometimes the CEO may say, and this is true for all companies, it's not not just for ACA. the CEO may well say, well, fine, go and have a chat to X person or Y person. My long-term practice is any time that I'm dealing with a staff member other than the CEO, I will always CC the CEO and correspondence or the emails or at least give them a ring and say, look, I've had a chat with X and this is what we talked about because there's a real risk that you run parallel conversations that get mixed meanings and that, that's not useful.
0: Yes, that chain of communication, as you said, is absolutely vital and sticking to the um, accepted ways of communicating just helps everyone work together much more easily. Now moving on, you mentioned uh, a skills-based board earlier. What are the specific skills that the ACA are looking for in uh, on a new director coming on board?
1: Yes, look, I think it's a combination of skills and I also emphasise before experience, because um, Lived experience, life experience is also important as, as we found as we have with Nicole and her experience and and some of its skill and some of its mixed, obviously. But when you look at the way you develop this, is you look at the strategy of the company. What's important? Where, what are we trying to do? What's it going to take to get there? And so some of the things, and this is not a complete list, but some of the things that the ACA believes is important, are um, Research and, and, and um, academic qualifications. Um, we know the importance of research to um, the understanding of chiropractic um, by um, other allied health professions in the community at large. So to have somebody on the board with those types of skills is a useful contribution to the board's work. Governance experience or qualifications is generically useful and um, uh, other than the, my particular governance qualifications, it's certainly useful that directors generically have good understanding of governance and what that means. Uh, I talked before about diversity. Uh, all diversity really does is give you um, alternate views about a particular question, and the views are informed by Sometimes their gender, sometimes where they live, as I talked before about sometimes their age. Um, There are too many boards that are dominated by middle-aged, middle-spread white men like me. (laughs) It's true, though. I mean, (laughs) if you think about it, I can certainly say from experience that a diverse board leads to a better outcome, and there's a heap of research, heap of research about that. So
0: I guess f- finally, we're, no matter um, experience um, in governance or uh, whether they're, um, they're whether they're new to, to practice, um, despite that, it's going to be a bit of a learning curve. There's plenty of um, opportunities for support. So for people who are interested, um, you know, you, you can get uh, information and support from the board. But, but finally, Martin, if someone is uh, interested in putting their hand up and nominating, what is it that they need
1: to do? I think there's a couple of things, just slightly, maybe before we head down that track. If you are successful of, as election, as a director to the board, then there's a series of processes we put in place to help you. Just we, we go through an induction process with you, which is a combination of meetings and description and, and discussion. Uh, mentoring is offered I'm more than happy to work with any board members and I get frequent calls independently saying what do you think about this not just tell them um, might not like it <laughs> sometimes, but, that, but that's what we do and then we also emphasize formal training uh, we would encourage and help um, new directors um, to get to be trained in governance that will just help both them and the organization now if you are interested Um, you need to nominate and there's a process as Kim Tompkin, the company secretary, will be sending out information or has sent out information around the forms and and the processes you need. You need to receive that into the company's email box by Sunday the 30th of August, which when you think about it, if you're going to mail it in by the post, means you have to get it in by Friday the 28th because the post office isn't open on Sundays. But the closed date is Sunday, the thirtieth of August at five pm, and so emails have to be received. Electronic lodgement has to be received by then. But ideally, don't leave it to the end in case there's delays. Um, and then the AGM will be held on the sixteenth of October remotely. And the process around election of directors starts with the boards making uh, board making an assessment of the skills of the candidates. And we only do that so we can inform the members of how we think um, the skills that have, people that have nominated will assist the board. It's not recommending people necessarily. It's just saying that they here have, at least on the face of it, skills that we think will be useful. Then there's a process um, of election that's controlled entirely by a third external party. And then at the AGM, um, the... Uh, announcement of those successful successful directors um, will be made i'm always happy to discuss with anybody uh, if they would like to be a director what's involved so
0: well martin that's i think we've pretty much covered everything there thank you so much for your time i think anyone who's uh, listened listens to you for five minutes or more understands what an asset you are to the ACA so i, I really appreciate you for that and for um making time for the podcast today
1: it is indeed my pleasure. Stay well,
0: that, well. Well, that's it for me. Thanks for listening. I hope this podcast has been helpful in your quest for excellence and look forward to chatting with you again on our next ACA podcast.